please open your Bibles to James chapter 2. Well, thank you, Travis, for those kind words, and thanks to all the pastors here for the kind invitation to come and be with you this weekend and to open the Word of God with you to talk about missions and God's plan uh, for the mission of the church. And it's been really encouraging to me uh, to see your interest and your passion for these things and the, the excellent questions that you have been asking uh, concerning the mission of the church and trying to be faithful to God's Word. And so, yes, what a wonderful blessing it has been for me to be here with you and to fellowship with you and, and, and with the Allens and, and the pastors here as well. I would like to say a word of greeting from the pastors and deacons and the saints of Grace Community Church in Huntsville, Alabama, my home church, my sending church, and from my family as well. Uh, one of these days we can get the whole family to come up here and, and to meet you and to visit with you as well. As Travis had mentioned, uh, we're on the mission field in the Czech Republic, and you might be wondering, where is the Czech Republic, and what happened to che Czechoslovakia? I think sometimes that's a, a knee-jerk re reaction for us that have grown up in the, the last century is Czechoslovakia, but Czechoslovakia actually uh, dissolved into the Czech Republic and Slovakia in 1993, and so the Czech Republic is smack dab in the middle of Europe. It is just to the east of Germany and to the west of Poland. It's about the size of South Carolina, about uh, 10 million people in the country, and you will remember Prague, the, the most beautiful city in all of Europe. R.C. Sproul said it's the most beautiful city in all of Europe, so it must be. Uh, it was never bombed during the war, so it's maintained its historic beauty there. Uh, but what a wonderful country, a beautiful country, a wonderful people, first world country, but spiritually it's a third world country. Uh, it is over 70% non-religious or secular, atheist agnostic, which makes it the most secular country in all of Europe. And so, obviously, evangelism is something that we eat, sleep, and breathe there. Uh, but it's also a privilege, as Travis said, uh, to be a, a pastor in a very small church in Kujim, which is just outside the second largest church, and so involved in evangelism, discipleship at that church plant, looking for other church plants as well. Uh, but our primary ministry, the reason we were sent there is to be participating in the Czech Bible Institute. And so just a, a small picture of the Bible Institute, we have three programs, a basic Bible survey program. It's kind of our feeder program where we teach through every book of the Bible, practical theology, systematic theology, apologetics, evangelism, and hermeneutics, how to interpret the scriptures. And from that foundational program, you can either go into pastoral ministry or the biblical counseling program. And both of those are of strategic importance in the life of the church and even to promote biblical counseling to you. Biblical counseling is, in the, around the world is really reforming countries, reforming churches. Uh, many people are being saved and baptized through the outreach ministry of biblical counseling. Marriages are being restored, purity restored to the church through those things. And so God is really blessing uh, that shepherding ministry of biblical counseling. So thank you for praying for us and your support of the ministry there. Uh, but uh, shift gears a little bit to get to our text this morning. Um, last week was Reformation Week, or, or Reformation Day, October 31st, uh, the anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses on the door of Wittenberg, Germany. And as you think about the Reformation, uh, what is really the crown jewel of the Reformation or the gospel itself? And I would have to say that is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. 
If someone asks you, well, what is the difference between what you believe and what the Catholic Church believes or the Eastern Orthodox Church believes, what would you say? Uh, oftentimes, in, in countries where evangelical biblical doctrine is a minority, people say, oh, you're in a, a Bible church, you're a cult, you know, you're a sect. And sometimes that kind of cuts off the conversation, doesn't it? But we can ask good questions in response to those types of things and, and just ask a simple question. Well, what would you say is the most significant difference between what the Catholic Church teaches and, for example, what the Bible says? And you ask them a question back. And they say, oh, I don't really know. Well, what is the most significant difference? I would say it is this doctrine that we are saved by faith alone in the work of Christ. And so you can immediately jump into the gospel when they say, I don't know, tell me. And so as we think about these things, uh, what does that mean that we are saved by faith alone? It means that the things that you do in life, the good things that you do, or the quote, good things that you do, uh, the bad things that you do, none of these things have to do with the forgiveness of your sins. The reason is because we are born in sin and our sinful natures dictate that we never do anything that is inherently good. That as Martin Luther, the German reformer, says that what we do is always curved back in on ourselves. That's called anthropocentric theology. Everything is bent back towards ourselves. And so that's why Paul says in Romans 3, 12, that no one does good. No, not one. None of us do good. And if that is true, brothers and sisters, if that is true and every one of our sins comes with a death sentence, what hope do we have of earning God's favor by our dirty, filthy, dead works that we think that are good, but that are motivated by sinful motives. Well, there is no hope that we have in ourselves. The only hope that we have is for another sinless human being to stand with us in God's court of justice and say to God the Father that I will take this person's full wrath that he or she deserves upon myself so that he or she can be considered innocent by God the creator and judge. Who would do such a thing? Well, this is where Jesus Christ comes in, right? The second person of the Trinity, being truly God and truly man. Jesus was that true spotless lamb of God that could take away our sin, life for life, a genuine substitutionary Atonement. He shed his blood, which was absolutely necessary for the forgiveness of sins. We see that in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so this is why John the Baptist says what he does when he saw Christ, right? Behold the Lamb of God that does not cover the sin of the world, but does what? Removes the sin of the world. And not only did he pay the perfect debt for sin, but he was raised again on the third day for our justification so that we may too have the hope of a resurrected body. And he is now sitting in the right hand of the Father and will return to judge the living and the dead. So people ask, what can I do to go to heaven? And what is our response? You cannot do anything for your justification. Why? Because Christ has done it all for us. The blood of Christ removes all of our sin, and we have absolutely nothing to contribute to that. 
Salvation is a free gift, a free gift as we come to him in repentance and faith. And if I ask you to prove that to me, what verses or, or chapters would come to mind? What books of the Bible would come to your mind? Well, Romans 3 is one of them. Romans 3, 28, that says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Galatians 2, 16, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For grace by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, so that no one will boast. Seems clear enough, right? Seems clear enough. Uh, but as Lee Corso says every Saturday morning in the fall on college game day, not so fast, my friends. Not so fast, my friends. How do our Catholic friends and our Eastern Orthodox neighbors respond to this? Well, they're going to turn to James 2 with you more likely than not. And they're going to look at verse 24 of James, 20, uh, James chapter 2 and have you look at these words that says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So how do we answer this objection? Does James contradict Paul? This is a dilemma. Uh, this is a dilemma that even Martin Luther himself struggled with, that gave him problems with the book of James. And so, as good evangelists and good apologists, we must have a ready answer for this so that we can be mighty tools in the hands of God to share the gospel with people. Now, a basic rule of interpretation is context, context, context. As we think about the doctrine of justification by faith alone that we just mentioned these passages, uh, for example, Romans chapter 4, we see that what Paul is talking about in context is a legal pronouncement of righteousness as justification. In other words, as you stand before God the Father in faith and repentance in Christ and his work, God the Father essentially hammers down the gavel and says, based upon your faith, you are pronounced innocent. How many times does that happen in your life? Once. Once. It is a one-time legal pronouncement of righteousness. What about the context of James? This is very, very important. The context of James is different. James is the very first book written in the New Testament by the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is writing, if you look in the very first chapter, first verse, to the dispersion of the 12 tribes. This happens because of persecution hitting in Jerusalem. And because of that persecution that hits, faithful saints are deported essentially from Jerusalem. And you imagine what would that be like? And I think even with persecution coming more and more strongly in our country, we can begin to start thinking what would it be like if you maintain biblical Christianity, your speech will be counted as what? Hate speech. And if you have hate speech, that means you're a dangerous person. And if you're a dangerous person, you're not only a dangerous person to yourself, but to your children and to your society. And your rights need to be taken away from you. And, and we see with militant atheists even saying that you should be put in jail because you're such a danger to society. 
And so we see how this, uh, this wheel of persecution can come very quickly, and these early saints experienced that. They were ostracized from their synagogues. That was the center of society. They were removed from their family and friends. Some of them were in jail, killed. And so they are leaving in the providence of God, which caused the spread of the gospel. No family, no friends apart from brothers and sisters in Christ. Money, all of these things. Imagine losing it all and being on the road. It is a very, very difficult thing. And so it's no wonder, isn't it? It's no wonder that the very first thing that James talks about is a theology of suffering. What is it to suffer? How are we to think biblically, theologically as we suffer? And so he gives us a theology of suffering. We would have joy in the midst of trials. And trials often lead to temptation, don't they? So the very next thing is how are you to uh, battle temptation? And who are we to blame for these things? And, and what does it mean to say that you have faith? Well, you, you should give to those who can give nothing back to you. You should not discriminate against people. And you see, all of these things are very, very practical in the early life of the church that is persecuted. He's painting a portrait for us of what genuine Christianity looks like. What's the proof? How can you tell if someone is a, a genuine believer or not? When things are good, the, 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 the pews, the chairs are full, and sometimes even going to church can be a benefit. You can, it's good for business. Make contacts, contacts. But when persecution hits, what happens? Authentic Christianity rises to the top and false professors are exposed. And I think we are starting to see that sifting process even in our own country, aren't we? So in our context, James is giving us a contrast between dead and living faith. A dead faith that is not genuine faith at all. It's a false faith. What is the difference between them two? And so these are the two points for today. We'll begin with false faith false faith. We'll begin with verse 14 through 20. James chapter 2 verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Cannot faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Someone may well say, well, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe in shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now, if we let our eyes go back to verse 14, we see one of the very first ideas here is that if someone says, and this is very important to understanding this, if someone says he has faith, in other words, this is a verbal confession. Yeah, there's, a, there's a saying in many languages that words are cheap. It's easy to say, I have faith, but what does that mean? Or to say, yes, I'm a Christian, but what does that mean? Just because someone says that they believe does not necessarily make it so. Where's the proof that you can see? 
Well, the proof in Christianity is the power of a changed life. It's how you live. So an initial question that we can ask as we come to this is every time the Bible talks about belief and faith, are we talking about a Christian? And I would say no. I would say no. Uh, there are different, different types of faith, different types of belief in Scripture. We could look back to John chapter 2 where the crowds are coming to Jesus, but Jesus does what? He, he does not commit himself to them because he knew what was in all men. In other words, he knew that the reason that people were coming to him with this superficial faith was so that they could get stuff. They could get free breakfast. It was non-saving faith. We see that in the parable of the soils in Matthew 13 where a variety of soils producing different kinds of fruit, and over time, the true fruit shows the true faith. It shows unfruitful frauds over time. And that's what James is talking about here, that true faith will necessarily produce fruit. Another proof for this, that there are different kinds of faith. Look at verse 19. Even the demons believe they have a type of faith, but are they saved? Will they be in heaven? Absolutely not. So how do we define true faith? And this is where theologians throughout history have been helpful to us in thinking about these things. Uh, The first aspect of genuine faith, faith is understanding. You have to understand the content of the gospel in order to be saved, don't you? You have to understand who Jesus is. We have to understand what your problem is, who God is, the solution, all of these things. You have to understand the content. But is that all that it takes to be saved? Well, no. Well, what about a second element? Yes, you must understand the content of the gospel, but you must acknowledge that it is true. You must believe that it is true. Is that what saving faith is? Is that all that saving faith is? Understanding and acknowledgement that it is true. I would say no. That is not the full picture of what saving faith is because who else has that kind of faith? Satan himself has that kind of faith. The demons have that kind of faith. And so there's a third critical element of faith, and that is a heartfelt trust and a repentant submission to the lordship of Christ. That is something that the demons and Satan will never do a heartfelt trust and repentant submission to the Lordship of Christ. But how do you know that? Do do the elect walk around with a red dot on their forehead and say, okay, this is the elect, we'll preach to them? No. So James is going to be talking about outward signs of a genuine Christian. But before we get there, there's another key term that we need to define. And and brothers and sisters, this is the key to the text. If you don't understand this one issue, you're going to miss everything. And that key term is justification. Justification. Uh, We already talked from Romans and Ephesians and Galatians about one definition of the term justification. And do you remember what, how we define the term? It is a one-time legal definition pronouncement of righteousness, a one-time legal pronouncement of righteousness. Our problem is, our tendency is to make every time we see justification, the rest of Scripture conform to that definition. And the, the problem is that there are more than one definition of the term justification. And so here is the key to the text. There is a second way that you can define the term justification, and that 
synonym for justification is vindication. Vindication. And we see this not only in English, but in Greek and in Czech and in Russian. You can define the term justification different ways. And one of them is vindication. And what, what does that mean? It is the sense of proving a claim to be true based on evidence. If you're vindicating a claim, you're proving it to be true by evidence. So let me give you an illustration to help you understand. Uh, two of my boys, uh, Nahum and Isaac, ages 17 and 15, are taller than I am now. And uh, so let, let's say that one of them says, you know, Daddy, I'm taller than you are. Uh, I, I think I'm stronger than you are. I can take you in wrestling. I, I can definitely take you in wrestling. I can out-wrestle you. So men, what does every good father say to that? Let's get it on, you know. <laughs> Here, here's, here's the floor. Let's get the couch out of the way. Prove it. Prove it. And so, you know, sometimes we have to bring them down a notch and, you know, tap them out, don't we? Uh, but there will come a time where, well, they will be tapping us out, yeah. But you understand the picture. What has happened there? My boy made a claim. I, I, I can pin you. And what do I say to him? Justify that claim. You got to justify that claim. You got to vindicate the claim. You got to prove the verbal claim to be true. And so you see that that's how our English word justify can also be used. But the next question you might be asking is, well, what about in the, in the biblical text? Can you prove that somewhere else in the Bible? And yes, I can. One text among others is Matthew eleven nineteen, where Jesus says, Matthew eleven nineteen, Jesus says wisdom is justified, and he's using the same term there, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, is Jesus saying that wisdom is legally pronounced as righteous by her deeds? No, that doesn't make much sense, does it? But what if, what if it's in the term of, or in the sense of vindication, that true wisdom is shown to be true wisdom by how she acts or how she behaves or how a person behaves? And so true wisdom is vindicated by her works. So James' point is clear, I think. If someone says, I am a Christian, a verbal claim, but they live like the devil, that's good evidence that the claim is a lie, that the life does not justify the claim. So James is going to give us an example of that. Notice verses 15 and 16 again. If a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? So typical in James' epistle, he's talking about the poor. Obviously in context, there's a lot of poor people that have been displaced. And not just the poverty or poor people in general, but what kind of poor person? What does the text say? Not the poor in general, but a brother or sister. A brother or sister. And how poor are they? Verse 15, they're without what? Food and clothing. All this makes sense in the context of Christian refugees. So what does this false confessor say? Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Now, this could be interpreted in the middle voice or the passive voice. Uh, what is the difference between those two? Well, in the middle voice, basically what is being said is, you go make yourself be warmed and filled. In other words, 
as the door is being shut, you're saying you need to get a J-O-B. You need to go out and work and get what you need because I need to get what I need. We're fending for ourselves. In the passive sense, it is more like a spiritual pious prayer, the hands up, may the Lord grant you peace and warmness and fullness as the door's being shut. And so what is lacking there? Yes, the Lord be with you, but I will be with you too. That, that's completely absent. Either case, is middle or passive good? No. And we kind of have a sense of anger as we are reading these words. How can one Christian treat another Christian like that who is without food and without clothing, a brother or sister in Christ, it's inconscionable. Where's the hospitality? There's no hospitality. And so if we're we're thinking back to the life of Christ and how Christ talks about these things, these are things that Christ talks about will be a part of judgment day. In Matthew 25, this is how he talks to the goats that that uh, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. Uh, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. That is exactly what James is talking about. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. That is what James is talking about. And what is the end for those people? It shows that they were never believers and they are cast into eternal hell The lack of works shows that the faith was dead in the first place. It was never a true, genuine faith. I think it also shows that a lack of hospitality, that's that's non-Christian. In other words, to be a Christian is to practice hospitality in your home. And so in verse 17, James uses the ultimate description for this false confession. What does he say? Even so, faith if it has no works, is dead. Why? It's by itself. There's nothing added to it. You see, just like a a tree without fruit is dead, so a non-working confession of faith, it shows the confession is, is empty. There's no genuine faith there. It's fake. It's just words. And so James emphasizes the empty content of this empty confession in verse 18. He says, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. And the punctuation that you have in your translations may be different and it's difficult because there's no punctuation in the Greek here. But I would say there's a period after works. You have faith and I have works, period. This This is what the critic is saying. But James responds and says, show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. This is the hypothetical situation. So essentially someone is coming to James and saying, look, there are a lot of different gifts in the church. You have faith and works. I have faith. Let's just get along. I'm okay. You're okay. Let's just move forward. James' response is saying, look, show me your faith without the works, which is impossible. And I will show you my faith by how I live, by my works. It's like a person saying, I can throw a football 80 yards, and then they refuse to throw the football. And then someone else says, I can throw the football 80 yards, and they get out and they actually do it. So too, faith and works are inseparable. The works justify the claim. It's like having a quarter. What are on the two sides of the quarter? 
George Washington and the bald eagle. What if one side was blank? Is it genuine currency or is it false currency? It's, it's, it's useless. You cannot use that. And so it is with faith and works. They are two sides of the same coin. They always go to, together hand and glove. And so going back to the Reformation, this is what Martin Luther said. It is impossible to separate works from faith as it is as impossible to separate burning and shining from fire. John Calvin gave one of my favorite statements on this, and he says that faith alone justifies. Faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. Let me say that one more time. Faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. So what will James' critic say next? Well, he says, wait a minute. Verse 19, wait a minute. I believe that God is one. So what are they saying here? They're, they're going back to Deuteronomy 6.4 and the great Shema of Israel. This is their statement of faith that is recited every morning, every evening. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I can say that I must be born again. In contemporary Christianity, we see a lot of times the same type of mentality. I say the Lord's Prayer. I say the Apostles' Creed. I have memorized the Nicene Creed. I must be born again. Well, James's response is in verse 19 and 20. You believe that God is one? And you can kind of see a little bit of sarcasm here. You do well. In other words, congratulations. Because the demons also do that. But unlike you that don't respond to that at all, at least the demons shudder. What, what a slap in the face to these false professors. He's saying at least the demons have some kind of response. They're, they're shuddering, but you say that God is one and you do nothing. That shows how dead your faith is, that the demon's faith works more than yours. So you see what he's doing here. He's going back to these three aspects of faith again. Understanding, acknowledgement of the truth of the gospel is not enough. There's this heart felt trust and repentant submission to the Lord of Christ that is absolutely essential to true saving faith. You can have absolutely correct doctrine, but still not be saved if your faith is simply an intellectual faith. I'm, I'm convinced hell will contain people with conservative, evangelical, biblical theology, but have never repented never repented. Yes, you must possess good doctrine, but good doctrine must also possess you. So here we see the qualities of false faith, don't we? It doesn't work. It's an empty confession. It's useless. It has no compassion. It is not hospitable. It's dead, superficial. Yeah, it does not save. It does not save. And as a side note, I think it's interesting what James is doing here uh, notice that he's not talking about them being antinomians or doing all kinds of sinful things. He's talking about not doing what they're supposed to be doing. That's the difference between sins of commission and omission. Commission is the, the things that you're outwardly doing that are sinful. The sins of omission are choosing to, to not do what you should do as a Christian. This is important because a lot of people say, well, I'm, I'm not that bad. I mean, I don't commit adultery. I'm not killing anybody. 
But James is saying, okay, but are you doing what you're supposed to be doing as a Christian? So he's asking these questions of what man in verse 20. And talk about offensive language. What does he say in verse 20? You foolish man. Why would James offend us in this way? The brother of Christ talked to us in these, these terms. I'm offended. Well, that's what James is wanting to do. He's wanting to offend you. Look, many of you may have grown up in church 10, 20, 30, 40 years plus and heard the gospel most of your life, and maybe you have never repented. James is talking to you this morning. He's saying you need to wake up. Don't just go through the motions, but consider Consider your faith. Have you genuinely repented of your sin? Turn from your old life. Turn to Christ. Give him your life. Deny yourself. Die to yourself. Give yourself to him. Hypocrites need to be awakened, and that's what James is doing because he loves us. It's an attention-getting device, but he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just stop there. He said, do you need more evidence? Verse 20, do you need more convincing, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is dead? And so he's going from dead faith now to our second point, which is genuine faith. What does genuine faith look like? Verses 21 to 23, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the Scripture was fulfilled, which said, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Now, as we read that, what questions come to mind? If you read it outside of its context, it looks like James is saying that he was legally justified by works by his willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac. But as you remember our conversation, there are two different definitions of the term justification. And so it's, it's our jobs as exegetes, right, to determine what is the context saying and how are the terms being used. There is the first type of justification, a legal pronouncement of righteousness. And how do we, determine, uh, how do we define the second way? It is vindication or approving a claim to be true by evidence. So the challenge is, okay, which, which way is he using the terms here? To help us understand that, let's look at the two different events in the life of Abraham here. What are they? What are the two different events? What does the text say? First, there's the offering of Isaac, verse 21. What is the second? His willingness or, or his coming to God in faith and it being reckoned to him as righteousness. That's verse 23. Okay, next question. Which of these came first? Which of these came first chronologically? The first is when Abraham believed God in Genesis 15, verse 6, and God, based on that faith, pronounced legally, you are justified before me because of your faith. That happened at the moment Abraham believed. Now, James is saying that Abraham was justified by works, by his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. That happened 30 years later after Genesis 15, where Abraham was legally pronounced to be righteous. So, what is being said here? 
This is where we see James using the second uh, definition of the term justification. In other words, when Abraham took his only beloved son that has been promised to him to Mount Moriah and he was willing to sacrifice him, that proved his faith was genuine. It vindicated his confession of faith before God, before others. These two events in the life of Abraham proves, I think without a doubt, we have two different ways that justification is being described here. Otherwise, you would have Abraham being saved twice, and that is theologically incorrect. And so, if, if, to help you in the future, you might even want to write ver, uh, on verse 21, vindicated, to help you to remember that. No, Abraham experienced salvation when he believed in Genesis 15. He exhibited the genuineness of that salvation later on as he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. You might ask, well, why was Abraham willing to do that? Could I have done that with my own son? How was a man able to do that? Well, the answer is in verse 22. Faith was working with the works. You see, because genuine faith is living, produced by the Holy Spirit living within us, works will naturally happen. They will. Just as a living tree will produce fruit, a living faith will produce works. This is God's work in us. It's not something where we just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we're going to press forward and and bite down on our mouthpiece. No, this is God working through us. That's what Philippians 2.13 says, right? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work. Why? For his good pleasure. It is God who is working in us for faith and repentance and then a life of sanctification where we become more and more like Christ. That's why God is the beginning, the middle, and the end of your justification and sanctification. This is the God-centered view of the Christian life. And so this is why in verse 21, uh, James says that, 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 James will, or that, that Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac, that completed his faith. You notice in the text it says that, it completed. Again, like a living tree that gives fruit, that fruit is a completion of the function of the church, or the tree, the purpose of the tree. It completes that. So Abraham's faith was completed by his fruit of being willing to sacrifice his son. And with the result, what is Abraham called here? What term of affection is used? He is the friend of God, the friend of God. And so also verse 22, this is the sense in which Genesis 15 is fulfilled. There's really not a prophecy in Genesis 15, but the sense of being fulfilled is that his faith was fulfilled. It was completed by this act of extreme, extreme obedience. So brothers and sisters, the issue here is is not that your works save you, but your works are proof that you are saved. Works do not earn you your salvation, They are evidence of salvation. And so that's why James in verse 24, this very controversial text, verse in verse 24 says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. What kind of justification is he talking about? By now you should know the answer. It is the vindication of your confession of faith. So let me paraphrase verse 24 
to, to give you the sense of that. He is essentially saying, you see that a man's verbal claim to faith is vindicated by works and not just by a verbal claim that he has faith. In the margin, again, I would recommend that you write vindication to help you remember that for yourself and even as you are evangelizing people. But interestingly, James does not just stop with Abraham. Who does he mention next? Verse 25, Rahab. Notice the text. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Again, by now you ought to know how, uh, what you should be thinking about to determine what kind of justification is being talked about here. I would contend that prior to the coming of the spies that Rahab was already justified. Now I have to prove that to you, don't I? <laughs> because if I can't prove that to you, the, the argument falls apart. So let's turn to Joshua chapter 2 and we're going to get an answer. As you're turning there, I want to read to you from Exodus chapter 9 and the story of the deliverance of God's people from, uh, from Egypt. And you remember what God tells Moses time and time again. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that, and what is the answer? So that my wonders will be shown throughout Egypt so that they will know, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Also, Exodus 9 Verse 16 says, for this purpose, I have raised you, Moses, up. What is the purpose? The purpose is this, to show you my power so that my name may be, my name may be proclaimed in all the earth, not just in Egypt, but because of what happens in Egypt, God's fame and his wonders and his glory and the fact that he is the only true God will be spread throughout the world. Now we come to Joshua chapter 2, verse 10. Notice what Rahab says to the spies. We have heard, <laughs> we have heard how the Lord dried up the water. And let's pause there just for a moment. Notice in your text, what does the, the word, the name Lord look like? Lower cap or uppercase? Uppercase. Why is that? It's because there are different Hebrew words for the names of God. Lower cap is Adonai, which means essentially Lord. The uppercase is the covenant name for God. Israel's covenant name, yes, it's Yahweh. Not a general name for God, like even our English term, God is pretty general, it's nonspecific. And that's the way Elohim is in the Hebrew language. But when you talk about Yahweh, Jehovah, this is the special covenant name that God has for Israel. And who is claiming that name? She is claiming that name. She says, we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og from you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you for Yahweh, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by Yahweh, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother, my brothers, my sisters, 
with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Like Abraham, Rahab was judicially justified by her faith in Yahweh prior to the coming of the spies. Her works completed or proved her faith. And by the way, I think this shows that the spies coming to Rahab was no accident. Uh, There's no coincidence here. It's not random. It's not arbitrary. God had sovereignly been working in this woman's heart to save her prior to the coming of the spies, and this is a divine appointment. Now think for a moment. Why would James, of all the people that he could choose to make his point here, why does he choose Abraham? And why does he choose Rahab of all people? Well, Abraham's kind of a no-brainer. That's kind of like the ace card. He's the father of the Jewish people. But what about Rahab? They're two completely different characters, aren't they? One is a man. One is a woman. One is the father of the Jewish people. Another, Rahab, she's a foreigner. Both, however, are in the line of the Messiah. He was a moral man. She was an immoral woman. He was a patriarch. She was a prostitute. He is high and lifted up in the, in, the, in the limelight, and she is low and hiding in the shadows. Put together, they show, don't they, that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is true in all periods of time, the Old Testament to the New Testament. It doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, male, female, whatever. God saves by faith alone. It also shows that that faith is never alone. That faith will always work. Something that I think both of them have in common as well that may have contributed to James using them is that they are both known for hospitality. For hospitality. Abraham was hospitable to the three angels that came to him in Genesis 18. And obviously Rahab risked her life and her family's life to be hospitable to whom? Foreigners, the spies that came to him. What wonderful examples to highlight the difference between that and verse 15 of what we read of an unbelieving profession of faith that is not hospitable. So James gives us one last ditch effort to hammer this home. He says in verse 26, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And we understand the picture, don't we? Uh, from the death of animals to the death of humans. When the spirit leaves the body, there's no movement. There's no sound. Nothing is produced. There's nothing. The point is that a body without breath is no more alive than a faith without works. That type of faith is dead. It's not working. And so as we return to our original question, does James contradict Paul? We've seen that the answer is fairly simple. It's simply a matter of understanding how terms are used and defining the terms lexically. You have different, two different types of definitions of the term justification that shows that James and Paul perfectly complement one another. Perfectly complement one another. Listen to the words of John MacArthur that talks about this. He says, May I suggest to you that James and Paul are not standing face to face in confrontation. They are standing back to back fighting two common enemies. 
Paul is fighting those people who want salvation to be by works. James is fighting those people who want a salvation that does not demand anything. Paul is saying salvation is only by grace. James is saying that salvation only by grace produces works. There's no debate here. Paul is defending himself against legalistic salvation. James is defending himself against a libertine, cheap grace, I would add, approach that says you can believe and have no change in your life and still be saved. So, Brothers and sisters, the good news is throughout all of history, salvation is the same. We are, as a gift, offered salvation by faith alone and by the power of the indwelling Spirit we are born again for a life of fruit bearing. So hopefully this message this morning will be an encouragement to you. Uh, number one, to rest in this great doctrine, this crown jewel of the Reformation coming out of the Scripture that you do not have to live your entire life in fear that I, I may not make it. I don't know if I've done enough good things to go to heaven. The good news this morning is that you can be saved by faith alone in the perfect work of, work of Christ. You bring nothing to the cross. Christ has done it all for you. Receive salvation as a gift. And if you are saved this morning, use this with humble boldness to evangelize your family, your friends, your neighbors, so that you can answer this text and give people the good news of salvation in Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your word, which is living and powerful and active it judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It pierces to the depths of the heart that no logical, rational, philosophical argument can get to. Father, give us, give us a resolve, a passion to spread your word, to give the gospel to those who are lost and dying around us. Father, so many people are going into eternity without hearing these truths. May we be used by you as an army to die to ourselves, to not be ashamed of the gospel, and to love others by telling them the truth. Would you do that for your glory, for your fame? We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Amen.